Welcome everyone to our latest NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz, pleased to be joined by three esteemed guests here, Dr. Ryan Hainline, the NCAA Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, he's the Executive Associate Dean for Emory University School of Medicine at the Grady Health System, and Dr. Cameron Wolf, Associate Professor of Medicine at Duke and Associate of the Duke Initiative for Science and Society. So, highly educated individuals, we've had you all before, uh, and you've offered great insight into everything that we're dealing with, not just in sports, but of course in society. So I'm hopeful that you'll give me some good news. Uh, let's start with Dr. Del Rio. Where are we right now in this phase of the pandemic? Well, you know, we're, we're currently in what I would say one of the uh, toughest waves of this pandemic in the sense that we are dealing with a a very, very infectious agent. Uh, I, quite frankly, don't recall ever confronting an infectious disease as contagious as this one. This virus is highly, highly transmissible with a very short incubation period. A friend of mine who's a uh, you know, pediatrician, vaccinologist said, this is measles on steroids, right? This is measles that transmits very quickly with a short incubation period. But the good news is that we have vaccines. So what we're seeing is a lot of infection but not as much severe disease for a variety of reasons. Number one, the virus doesn't infect the lower respiratory tract as much. But number two, if you're vaccinated, well, you may not be as protected against infection. You're still protected against severe disease and against death. So those that are vaccinated, and especially those that are boosted, um, my, my sense is, you know, try not to get infected. But if you get infected, it's probably going to be a pretty, you know, a head cold. It's going to be a bad cold, but it's not going to be more than that. But if you're not vaccinated, you could potentially be in trouble. And we have patients in the hospital who are very ill as a result of, of this, 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 this outbreak because they're not vaccinated. So Dr. Wolf, I wanna pick up one thing right off the bat from what Dr. Rio Rio said, because in my conversations uh, with coaches and student athletes who are infected, who have been isolated over the last couple of weeks, I'd say the majority of them were actually all of them were vaccinated. They weren't boosted. I know none of the people here on our screen have that decision power to change the definition of what fully vaccinated means. Uh, but where are we in that in that point of this pandemic to where fully vaccinated should really translate for everyone, for athletes, meaning boosted? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think you know, for a start, there's a legal definition of what fully vaccinated is when it comes to employment. So I kind of want to swerve away from that. But I think when you answer that, you want to sort of look at data that speaks to how much extra benefit does that booster give you? And, and specifically, what do we know about that for Omicron? And I think our data so far for mRNA vaccines, which are the ones that, of course, here in the United States, we've used the most of, would say that we probably get an extra boost of about 40% protection against symptomatic COVID when you take a booster. It looks like it moves you from about 35 up to perhaps 75% less likely to get symptomatic illness at all. So, you know, that's not the 95% that we kind of became familiar with December of last year against old strains when these vaccines were first released. 
Um, but that's a meaningful extra advantage that I think you have up your sleeve when you look at a talk about a booster. And our conversations here and throughout the ACC, for example, have been very clear to say, look, there's, we think that extra benefit that you can do for an individual or you can do within your team setting is, is, is highly important. We do it absolutely here at Duke Hospital. It's become, in fact, part of all of our healthcare worker requirements to make that um, sort of necessary because we think that extra benefit really helps our entire community. It's a little different to think about the severity to Carlos's point. So I, I do think all of these vaccines seem to be having a decent impact on reducing the real severe end of the spectrum. Um, but to, you know, exactly the point mentioned early that the unvaccinated person still leaves themselves really wide open for this, the full gamut of severity that COVID can bring. So it certainly beneficial, certainly adds good defense. Not perfect, but a heck of a lot better than not taking it. So Dr. Hainline, a lot of schools have told me that they took the time over the Christmas break to get boosted. And in fact, now like I'm having coaches flat out just tell me, hey, we're all boosted. Like, it's now a badge of honor in a lot of different schools. Where was, where do you think some of these universities and, and schools were in terms of not maybe pushing that message as hard as they probably should have earlier in the fall? Well, I, I think it's a relatively new message to, to push in terms of the meaning of, of being boosted, but uh, I, I have a feeling that message will be pushed uh, uh, considerably in, in the near future. So um, the medical advisory group, the NTA COVID-19 medical advisory group and, and uh, Dr. Del Rio and, and Dr. Wolf are members of that. Um, we met this week and they actually uh, made a recommendation, meaning the advisory group, that we change our definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated. So in the document that is released to the membership this week, so this is our ninth resocialization document. It's called uh, Resocialization of, of, of Collegiate Sport and, uh, uh, for the Winter um, Training and, and Competition Considerations. And it, and it pertains to T1 or Tier 1 individuals. And we say being fully vaccinated means either that you've received your uh, uh, series of uh, you know, the mRNA vaccine, so the two doses of the Pfizer or Moderna, or uh, within that six-month window, and you're still within that six-month window, or you're within the two-month window of the J&J &J vaccine. So that can count as being fully vaccinated. But then once you're outside of that, meaning you're booster eligible, so if you're outside of that window and you haven't received your booster, according to this document's definition, you're no longer fully vaccinated. So you must receive the booster to at least fall into that criteria. And then the recommendations in the document clearly differentiate fully vaccinated from those who are unvaccinated or not fully vaccinated. So there was a key word that you just used there, recommendation. Uh, you and I have talked offline about guidance, advising. And there seems to be a real disconnect within the membership of not fully grasping, uh, and I don't mean Indianapolis, I mean out all across the country of where the jurisdiction lies with the uh, Medical Advisory Board. Dr. Del Rio, you're in Atlanta. Dr. Wolf, you're in the Research Triangle there area by Duke. And yet you could have two totally different local counties that deal with this issue in Georgia and North Carolina 
as you know, Dr. Hayline could have in New York or Indiana. How do we get that message across that these are guidance, advising, recommendations, yet, yet there's no way that this group can mandate or dictate what happens across the country unless it is a championship setting? Dr. Wolf, and then we can go around our room here. Yeah, I mean, we, we've kind of been grappling with that for a couple of years couple of years now, haven't we, which is that if the footprint of the NCAA or many of the conferences spans over multiple counties and multiple states, frankly, and I think we have to remember that there is sort of jurisdictional control here in an outbreak setting still lies with county health departments and state health departments and then it feeds up to the CDC. So we certainly will um, make recommendations that we think fits best medical advice for sporting teams to fit in with those guidelines. But I, we've always been particularly cautious to sort of have county health departments and you know really engage with us the whole way along and make sure that we're in lockstep with them wherever we can be. Even though I think everyone would recognize that different states have, have tackled parts of the pandemic in slightly different ways, and that's okay. It's evolved in different ways in different parts of the country. Um, but we are, you know, it's one thing for us to say what we think is right, but it has to fit in with those jurisdictions. Well, you know, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think the issue is we live in a, in, in this is sort of a state's right and, and public health is run by the states and, and the states then delegated to the counties. And even if you look at CDC as a federal agency, CDC can make recommendations, but doesn't make mandates. It's really up to the states to implement the recommendations of the CDC and decide whether to accept them and how to and how to implement them. So, uh, you know, when CDC wants to to I would say mandate something, they want to mandate reporting or something like that. There has to be a legislation process, and there's a process of how that data gets. But even even in those circumstances, the data is is the identified. But you know. Uh, Think about it, you know, in this country, we don't have a, a national vaccine registry, right? There's no national vaccine registry. Each state keeps that data very tightly controlled and very confidential. I think it's gonna be really hard to change this recommendation because uh, it has imp of what a, a, a fully vaccinated individual is because it has implications for employment. It has implications for, you know, attending events, et cetera. All I would say is I look at the at the fully vaccinated uh, re recommendation as the floor, and then you build on top of that, right? I would say that to me is a minimal requirement. I think what good what probably would happen is, I mean, let's suppose that at a certain point, school X, I'm going to say I don't know, University of North Carolina decides that in order to play in their stadium, you need to be boosted. Well, then that's going to create a snowball phenomenon, which if I'm going to play there, I need to do this. And then that has implications. But as you saw, there are already many states in which governors or legislators have actually passed uh, uh, laws and, and made it illegal to even request uh, uh, mandates on, on vaccination. So here, for example, in Georgia, uh, you know, if you're if you're playing in a in a state facility, if you're having an event in a state facility, you cannot request vaccination as proof of proof of vaccination as a requirement as a requirement for entry. Yet, if you played in in a in a private facility, you could certainly do that. So it's it's really complicated, and it really if too many political forces are in play. So uh, ideally, I think what we need to do is 
is make recommendations and then try to convince people what the best thing to do, what the, what the safest thing to do and talk about safety more than anything else. So Dr. Hainline, this is another one that, you know, I, I would just love it to all make sense. And I know we're not gonna see consistency. So a number of schools across the country, largely in the Northeast from Mid-Atlantic up, Midwest, far West, are now every day I'm getting emails. They're enacting the policy that it is to what Dr. Del Rio said, vaccine or negative test to enter the facility. That also includes every tier one person. The only group that it doesn't include is the opposing team. And when I spoke with a couple of these different schools, they said that they rely on the opposing team's medical you know, doctors, trainers, you name it, to make sure that that team is in compliance. So if it's an ACC game and an unvaccinated player is coming to play at Duke, they are assuming that that player has tested negative. They're not checking the opposing player. There, there's this obviously this honor system between staffs. Um, that seems to be the best we're at right now. What, what are your thoughts of the way these schools are managing this with their making the requirements except for the opposing team? You know, when you look at the guidance that is out there or, or the recommendation, so um, schools the, the, or the student athletes and the tier one individuals, um, if they are fully vaccinated, they aren't being tested if they're asymptomatic. So, you know, when you have two opposing teams playing against one another, the, the rationale for testing would be uh, if someone is not fully vaccinated and they're in some sort of surveillance testing, which we, we provide guidance for that, or if there really was an outbreak and there was a, a reason to test others and that's sort of made on a case-by-case -case basis. And so I, I think what we've seen um, is, and the team physicians have spoken openly about this, there, there really is a, a, a mutual trust. I mean, it, COVID has done a lot of things, but if it's done one thing, it's really brought people together in a way that I've never seen before in terms of physicians working together, teams working together, and, and everyone sort of looking out for the, the, the greater public health. That's within the world of sport and, and that's happened really quite well. So, um, but, but getting to, to the, the cut and dry of it for, for the athletes themselves that are, are fully vaccinated and, and, and they're not without, and they're without symptoms, uh, they aren't being tested. I think I just add the one thing, um, you know, I think it's also incumbent upon each school to be really clear as to what their policy is, what their county policy is and health departments and, and make that visible teams uh, and equally to understand ahead of time what what it's going to be like for them to visit somewhere else because there will be these little subtle differences and I think people to, to Brian's point have been really good so far at actually offering up early visibility um, to say look hey you're coming to play here in city x this is this is the way this is being handled here and you may need to adjust and that's that's worked well Dr. Del Rio, something I saw for the first time on Monday night uh, that I think will be the norm here in the short term is with the new CDC uh, guidelines on isolation. Um, after day five, if days six through 10, you have to wear a mask. And right off the bat, I saw this in the Wisconsin-Purdue game, two Wisconsin players played with a mask on. So first time I've seen it up close and personal where they're now playing with a mask if they're within those days six through 10. Uh, your thoughts on that new wrinkle that we're dealing with? 
Well, I, I think, again, it, it is related to the fact that we decrease, uh, CDC decrease the time that you need in isolation, right? Otherwise, you can still take, stay 10 days in isolation and not wear a mask and come out at day 11. But the idea was to get you out earlier and hopefully be able to then, uh, you know, reincorporate that person into the society, into their team, into whatever they were doing. Uh, I think it's really important to remind that to people that even though they're leaving isolation early, uh, they are, they're still need to be masked uh, with a, with a, with a well-fitting mask for the next five days. I think that it's also important to remind people that we're, we're, where athletes are getting infected in their great majority is not in the playing field, right? It, it's outside. It's when they are maybe in the locker room or maybe when they, after the game, go to a, a bar, to a restaurant, to, set, to a party, to celebrate. And that's where the infections are happening. So again, we can only do so much. The NCAA can control certain activities, but it cannot control what happens in people's personal lives. So, so communicating to the teams the importance of, of not only staying you know, healthy and, and, and remaining healthy during the game and during the practice, but actually uh, being careful of not getting infected outside of the practice and in a social event, I think is a really important component of what needs to be communicated. Just as a follow-up to that, we, we discussed that with our group and put out guidance this week. And um, so what is the effectiveness of, say, playing a basketball game with a mask on where the mask can come up and down and, you know, it gets sweaty, it, 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 it sort of impedes performance. And, and as Dr. Del Rio said, the, the, the chance of on-court transmission has really not been uh, documented as being high. In fact, it's, it's, it's really quite low. So the group, when we met last night, or, or met this week, and then sent out the guidance, we said that after you leave isolation for those five days, that uh, you can complain without a mask if you've undergone a test beginning on day six, and that COVID test is negative. But that outside of that athletic space, you remain masked all the time for the same reason Dr. Del Rio brought up that really where the infection is, 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 is transmitted and spread is, is uh, in the social setting. So, so we address that, I, I think, in a, a, a pretty reasonable manner because quite frankly, we don't really want people playing masks at high level competitive events on the basketball court when, um, you, know, you know, when you're going up for a rebound and, and, and the mask gets caught in someone's hand and, you know, other things can happen too. It's just probably not a very effective strategy. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a great nuanced point. Dr. Wolf, um, you know, I, I've got all these anecdotes because I've been traveling all over the country and been safe. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was in St. Louis for the Missouri-Illinois game. And once again, this is the different parts of the country. All the media, mask, only time mine was off was when I was on camera, and yet almost no masks in the stands. And so, you know, we've got fans right behind the teams. Um, obviously, that's a St. Louis thing. That's in Missouri. But how, how do you reconcile, you know, packed arenas and different rules, and yet we're all trying to be safe, uh, yet there's no consistency from, you know, UCLA and USC this week, no fans. Yet if they go on the road, fans. Uh, and so there's also a little bit of a disadvantage now actually within the field of play because some teams have actually a home court and some now may not. Yeah, no, look, you raise, you raise a perfect question. And I, I think it's, it's visibly showing some of those differences that we talked about earlier, isn't it, in terms of like different regions and jurisdictions tackling this in different ways. 
you know, I think you've got to think about who who do you look out for when you put in some of these policies. So clearly, a lot of our policies, as written towards the NCAA, are focusing on student athlete health first and foremost. That that has to be the most important. Um, but also staff and, and and guests like yourself, if you come as a you know to to a game, we we also want them so. And then I think then, then you start running into, hey, how does my college or how does my stadium want to interact within the county, within the town, within the city? And how do we message that safely in a, in a state which, frankly, at the moment has had an explosion in cases? So, you know, we, I'll tell you our experience. We, we felt that we have a, um, a somewhat of a responsibility to all the people who come and want to watch our game. And so we've been trying to message very carefully to say, look, we think masks, vaccines, tests when you need them and staying away if you're symptomatic are absolutely important for each other as much as they are, you know, things that can be an NCAA policy in terms of for player safety. But you're right. I think at the end of the day, there again, there have been very different ways as this pandemic has evolved that different cities and regions have tried to tackle it. I think our job needs to be to be very clear on what is safe, safer and what is less safe. And I think you can come back to being very clear in a high incidence time like now, you can say vaccines with a booster is much safer, masked when you're in close proximity to people indoors, especially folks are yelling and screaming at a basketball court is much safer. And, you know, you can do the right thing, frankly, by all of your um, fellow supporters in the crowd if you're prepared to stick your hand up and say, hey, I've got to sit this one out, I feel sick. Um, but you're right, there's, there's clearly visible optics that are different between different games in the same way that outside of the sporting world, there are incredibly different optics as we look at the way some states handle COVID in general. And, and, and you know, this is where the rubber hits the road for us and it's hard to get around that. So, Dr. Del Rio, this is another issue that um, obviously, you know, on college campuses, you don't want this division to be that student athletes always get something and students, general student body don't. But to Dr. Wolf's point, how do you reconcile that a game is okay and we're saying the field, the court, you know, when the transmission is extremely low versus a classroom where everyone would have to be masked and maybe to some degree uh, separated, but not maybe as separated as an arena. Uh, those and a lot of institutions are online for these couple of weeks. You know, Michigan State, Northwestern, I think Duke, um, you know, uh, USC at the beginning. So the regular student body sees, wait a minute, I got to stay in my dorm room. I can't go to class where I would think it would be safe. And yet there's the basketball game and there's 15,000 people in there. Uh, how do you balance that on a university? No, that's that's very complicated. And that's where we need to be careful that we're also not, uh, I would say, frankly, schizophrenic in our in implementation of policies precisely because of what you say, right? Uh, we can say it's okay to do this and not okay to do that. Uh, you know, I was, I was talking to, to a university president who was saying that you know, they were struggling about the idea of going virtual or not going virtual this first initial weeks. And he said, you know, about 50% of our students, even if we go virtual, they will already be here. They're going to be in their apartments. They're going to be in, uh, in, 
you know, they may not move into campus because they're, they're not freshmen, but they're juniors or seniors. They're gonna be in their apartments here around town. They're gonna to be in, in houses that they live in. So they're gonna be congregating. They're gonna to get together in groups and it's gonna be safer for them to be in campus than not to be in campus. So sometimes really it's, it's, it's really valuing and realizing what you can do and how you do it. I want to stress the the uh, in those settings also the importance of making access to testing uh, availability of testing is very important. I think in many uh, cities right now getting tested is incredibly hard, and I think if we're going to be doing something at universities, we need to be making sure that everybody has access to testing because we need to be careful that we're not making testing available just to athletes so they can play and not making available to everybody else who's not an athlete. So that's another issue of equity that I think it's very important to keep in mind that we don't you know, use all the tests so we can keep the games going, but not test other people who are actually sick and who actually may need to be tested in order to isolate themselves. Can you both, uh, Dr. Halon, Dr. Wolf comment also on that, on that sort of inequity that one thing is okay on a college campus, but a class is not? Well, I think we've always uh, strived to make certain that when we talk about the athletes, we're calling them student athletes. So in all of the policies, we wanted there to be a, a consistency across across their life. Um, the equity issues are, are really key. So it, it, it came up, for example, when during some of our championships uh, last winter, when, when some people were being tested on a regular basis. But, you know, it's, it's interesting back then, you know, a little less than a year ago, there was ample resources for testing. The, there was a very different infrastructure place. And, and right now it's just shocking that, that we have so little testing available in this country. It's, it's really quite shocking. And so that's where the equity issues are, are going to play out. Again, from a testing point of view, because so few of our athletes are being tested unless they're symptomatic because the, the vast majority are, are, are fully vaccinated or, or vaccinated to the point that they uh, don't need surveillance testing. So really right now, the only athletes being tested are the ones who are, are, are symptomatic or that the very few that are unvaccinated. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's true. And this is, you know, this has ebbed and flowed, hasn't it, as we've run into different phases of the pandemic. Um, you know, ask me that three months ago when I would say, I can afford to, to be testing student athletes at a slightly different cadence than people on campus because I thought their risk was different. You know, I think in the middle of an early football game, for example, where people are huddling and mingling that much more intently, that there was risk there that those students were assuming to be a little different and we would treat them differently. I think now that you see such a huge community incidence of COVID again, you got to be careful about that. And we are starting to hear um, some early signals of, to Ryan's point again, of, of where jurisdictions are struggling to get testing. And I, I don't personally ever want to have our campus have the optics of being the place where you can get all the testing in the world. But if I go down the street, I can't find any. Um, that's, that's a rolling issue. It, it, it's different this month than it was three months ago. I hope it will be more flexible again as time moves forward. And we have tried in different groups to put in some flexibility to frankly allow campuses and their athletic programs to give and take a little bit on the way that they test their athletes to be responsive to what their demands are in their local community. 
um, or their local hospital or their local student health center. I, I think we just have to be a little bit adaptable there as much as that is difficult to keep adjusting the new rules as we go. All right, last thing I wanna just throw at you guys. Um, every school uh, that I've seen, you know, for the most part has had the MLK day as sort of that date when they, if they're online now, they hope to be in person. So around January 18th, which sort of indicates that the peak of Omicron, at least here, might be around that time and we could be heading down and maybe, you know, be together a little bit more. That being said, all the winter championships don't start for another five weeks after that or six weeks after that. Um, so as that as the backdrop, if we can go around our Zoom room here, what's your sense about first that January 18th time to maybe pull back just a little and be in person uh, versus where we could be potentially, and I know there's nothing absolute, uh, when we start with championships. So I'll start with you, Dr. Del Rio. Well, you know, predicting what this pandemic is going to do, I think is hard. We're still in a very rapidly rapid ascent of this of infections. Uh, I've seen different models that give you a peak somewhere between the third and the fourth week of, of January to early February. And I think it's going to depend. It's going to vary from state to state. I think New York, Georgia, Florida right now are having very significant outbreaks. They may peak a lot earlier than other places that are not having those significant outbreaks. So I think it's going to be sort of be a moving average across the different places in the country. And I think you need to look at your local local epidemics in order to understand what's going to happen. Uh, I think, you know, again, while, while going virtual may feel safer, it may not necessarily be safer because there's so much infection throughout the country that at the end of the day, those students are also going to get infected. It may be that in a college environment where you can actually have them in a classroom, whether you can say you need to be masked, you need to be tested, uh, you may actually be able to limit uh, the transmission a lot more. I mean, I mean, I really don't know at this point in time, it is so hard to really know what the what the true move is because the reality is, you know, the economy is open. Everybody's going everywhere. Everybody's going to restaurants, to the movie. I don't see people significantly curtailing what they're doing as a result of this, uh, of this outbreak. And, you know, I think we saw the Christmas holidays. So I suspect there's gonna be a lot of traveling around MLK weekend and, and so I, I, I don't think that's going to be when the, when the wave is going to come down and may actually be continued to go up after that. But at the end of the day, I, I remind people, we're not in the same place we were a year ago. We have tools. We know what works. We know vaccines work. We know boosters work. We know mask work. And we have testing. And I think if we implement the strategies we know, we can actually continue doing things in a safe way or in a safe, at the safest possible way rather than just retracting and saying we're going to lock down. Uh, I mean, we're, we're going to have to see, but my, my guess is that we're in for some very complicated two or three weeks, but after that, we may be in a much better place. Yeah, I think that timeline makes sense to me too, with the recognition that some states will be slower than others. Um, you know, it's hard because this epidemic, this, this wave has occurred in the middle of Christmas and New Year. And so that sort of skews lots of models. And it's been hard to therefore even compare against like the UK, where we've often looked at to understand they've always been a few weeks ahead of us what, what they would predict for us. They're still going up. So Carlos, I completely agree that I think the next two or three weeks are gonna be rough, whichever, whichever state you're in, frankly. You know, we've, we, we would sort of view schooling here in much the same way, I think. We, we, 
we, we have deferred for a couple of weeks and stayed at home, but I think it's as much of our chance to get institutional logistics and plans in place and sort of see where things pan out for a couple of weeks rather than truly thinking it's more or less safe. I don't think that's the issue at all. I think, in fact, we have a much better control of, of mitigation activities and control of movement on a campus or in a hospital or on an athletic court than folks do at home in a general setting. So I, it's not a safety question. I think we know students um, learn better when they're on a campus. I think that part of this is very clear. And I want to be really sensitive that we don't sort of lock ourselves into these um, plans of isolation that, in fact, down the road hurt our education system far more. No matter, you know, it's taking the side from athletics for a little bit. Um, so we, you know, we'll we'll be looking at that. I think it's important to judge where you, where your own state is. Um, I, I can't see this getting much slower before the end of January. Um, beyond that, I, I, boy, I'd use a crystal ball to predict where we'll be in the winter tournaments. But by the way, Dr. Wolf, it's okay to talk about this because student athletes, so these athletes have to be in school. And so they're dealing with that as well. So I appreciate yeah. that. All right, Dr. Halon, you get the last word here. Championships. We're still a ways away. So uh, it's been clear there's no plan for a bubble for the men or the women. Uh, because March could be a whole lifetime from now in terms of what the world could look like. What is happening in terms of what planning is going on or, or where at least you hope we could be for championships that for the most part are the month of March and into early April for winter sports? Well, you know, the great news is that we had a wonderful fall championship season and it, it, it went off uh, really quite successfully and, and there, there were uh, no significant issues, and, and and we were able to deal with everything. And and I think what Dr. Del Rio said in terms of us having all of the tools available now, and so many more tools. When I think about the Winter Championships last year, I mean it was really the planning was just phenomenal. So I think we're in in a better place. There, as you said, there are no plans for a bubble, and uh, we learned a lot of good lessons from the Fall Championships, and 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 maybe we'll just hope that this way we'll uh, have past and there won't be a new one by the time we have the winter championship so that's not a crystal ball that's a that's a hope but um but if it if it hasn't uh, again we'll we'll deal with it and and the championships it really makes sense that they'll just go on well i appreciate all of uh, your time the three of you um i learn a lot every every week that we do these things and uh uh obviously you guys are doing unbelievable heroic work for all of us. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, appreciate you. Dr. Cameron Wolf, and of course, Dr. Brian Hayline, you've been with me the whole way here. Uh, as always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where all our social series are archived. Thanks for watching, everyone. Stay safe.